This is the Education Gadfly Show. Uh, he's a biter. I won't say which of you is, is Luis Suarez. All right. All right. But uh, he's famous. And uh, what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, filling in for Mike Petrilli here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-hosts, the Edison Cavani and Luis Suarez of Education Reform, Brandon Wright and Adam Tyner. I know the latter guy. Yeah. I don't know the former. I'm not yeah, a good enough okay. soccer both- fan, I don't think. Yeah, well, so the important... Luis Suarez plays for Uruguay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's a biter. I won't say which of you is, is Luis Suarez. All right. All but right. Uh, he's famous. And uh, we're going to talk about New York City uh, schools today. So let's jump into our education reform update. All right, welcome back. So we're going to talk about New York City's selective schools today and specifically Mayor de Blasio's plan for uh, changing the admission policies. Brandon, do you want to just outline the issue for us? Sure. So as I understand it, the last I saw it reported, uh, it's kind of two-pronged. There's a big change. So currently, the way that kids gain admission into the selective high schools, and there's only a few of them, as I understand it, is with a test that is designed specifically for this purpose, for gaining admission. Uh, There's an objective cutoff, um, and if you're above it, you get in. If you're below it, you don't. End of story. De Blasi wants to change that in part by... uh, doing away with the special test um, and making it so that uh, kids gain admission by a combination of their class rank at their school and their scores on the state standardized tests. Okay. The, the weighting of these two prongs um, isn't set. Uh, I saw a bill proposed uh, that didn't set the weights, but instead proposed to give the chancellor the person in charge of these the city's public schools, um, the power to set these weights. So that's sort of up in the air. This bill, as far as I know, hasn't been voted on, hasn't been passed. Um, so uh, we'll see what happens with that. The other way that de Blasio uh, plans to change this is currently there's this thing called the Discovery Program. And essentially, it searches for low-income kids in the city and uh, gets them into these selective high schools. Um, Currently, something like 5% uh, of the um, kids enrolled in these schools came through this this program. They're low-income kids who just missed the objective cutoff I mentioned earlier. Okay. Would it be fair to call it an affirmative action program, approximately? Well, I don't know exactly how it works. So currently, uh, again, I think it's just low-income kids, but de Blasio wants to change it from low-income kids to to high-poverty schools. So instead of... uh, Instead of basing eligibility for the discovery program on uh, sort of a kid's family income, my understanding is that de Blasio wants to base it on whether they attend a high poverty school. The New York Times said that this is in part because more African-American and Hispanic kids tend to attend these high poverty schools. And that seems to be a driving force for this program, that not enough of the kids enrolled in these in these schools are African-American or Hispanic. So those are the two changes. Um, nothing, I believe, has been actually implemented. It's sort of ideas at this moment, but yeah. Okay, so big picture, essentially broadening the, or softening the criteria for getting into New York City's most selective high schools with what it seems like the goal is to get more kids of color into them, potentially at the expense of sort of low-income Asian kids or, or possibly white kids. And of course, uh, you know, all of this coming against the backdrop of 
the Trump administration doing essentially the opposite of this, I think, at the federal level. Uh, so uh, as usual, we've really managed to put our thumb on it here. <laughs> uh, Adam, do you want to jump in? How do you feel about the policy as Brandon has outlined it? sort of sketched out. Obviously, nothing's finalized yet. Well, I think that one of the aspects of the program that is really interesting and I think deserves, I think Mayor de Blasio deserves a lot of credit for putting this issue on the on the agenda. Um, if you look at the actual um, breakdown of students in New York City, 70% are Black or Hispanic and only 10% of the students that, ter- uh, that are attending these um, elite high schools are Black or Hispanic. And so there's a, a real um, question of access uh, to these to these really elite, excellent schools and the mechanism that they have proposed. I mean, one of the mechanisms, as Brandon said, is about broadening the criteria. The other thing has to do with making the, it based on more local norms as opposed to a citywide cutoff having different norms in different places. And so that isn't affirmative action. It's a race-blind policy. There's no racial quotas or anything like that. But at the same time, can promote uh, better integration of the schools. And so I actually think that um, it's a really promising idea. I know that it's taken a lot of heat by entrenched interests in um, in in New York City and among some people who I think are maybe suffering from a kind of de Blasio derangement syndrome where they have seen a lot of policies coming out of a mayor de Blasio's administration that they didn't like on education and are now not really giving a fair hearing to, to this policy. But I actually think it's a really uh, a really good idea. Maybe some of the details are things that we could we could talk about and um, and should be debated. But I uh, I definitely think it's a good start. So I agree with Adam that these two things, uh, universal screening and local norms, are a really good thing. I've been talking about gifted education a lot over the years, and these are two things that I've always uh, put forward, um, always wanted more of. Um, so if in fact these policies are implemented and they're implemented in a way that, that, that creates more of those two things, then that's great. Um, two things though, uh, one color me a little skeptical that it'll actually be implemented in such an ideal way. One of the things that concerns me, I mentioned earlier, right. Is that potentially if the bill that was introduced is passed, the chancellor could set, uh, these weights and one of the one of the driving forces, or at least something that's popular uh, among de Blasio's voting base in the city is sort of um, anger against testing, right? So I wouldn't be shocked if they did implement this and made the universal screening aspect of it um, a small portion. And if you're basing admission into what are supposed to be these sort of super high caliber selective schools based on simply your class rank and one of the many, many, many New York schools, I just don't know that that's going to accomplish the things that those of us who care about gifted education and local norms want to accomplish. The second thing is New York City is a very, very big place with a lot of students. These selective schools are impressive schools. They do impressive things. The kids who attend them go to very impressive colleges. There's not that many of them either. It's a small, small portion of kids who attend these schools. Is there really not space in New York to have these schools with these objective cutoffs and schools that are based on these sort of universal screening, local norm things? Why not have them both? I don't see any reason to not have them both. So it just seems strange to go after these schools for these 
stated purposes, but not also push to actually create them at scale so that you can actually change the lives of more than a few thousand kids in New York. Millions of kids go to school there. I agree with Brandon that, I mean, there's a lot of broader questions here about, you know, improving, you know, expanding access to to quality education and, you know, figuring out the background factors of why it is that so few black and Hispanic students are performing well enough on these tests to get into the schools in the first place. I think there's a lot of broader issues, but the narrow issue here is about how do we give access to these schools? And I am somebody who is normally pretty, um, uh, I defend using standardized tests. I think they communicate valuable information. I think that they should be used. And I know a lot of people who are in that camp of knowing that, believing that standardized tests are a, a good tool that we have in education policy and we should use it. I don't know if I know anybody in this country who thinks that your whole educational trajectory should be determined by your score on a single standardized test. That is an extremist position that I don't think that you have to be a kind of like, you know, test, you know, anti-testing opt out kind of, um, you know, person to think is just a bad way to, to, to base policy. We know actually there's been some studies. I was, when I was looking into this over the last couple of weeks, I saw that there's been some studies of the predictive value of the SHSAT um, on student performance in, in, in high school. And it is predictive. It does communicate valuable information, but grades also communicate valuable information that those test scores don't reflect. And so having a broader set of criteria, I think is, is really a, a positive thing. Now, Brandon says, maybe we, you know, the chancellor will not use any tests or something. And I, I totally agree that that would be a problem, but that isn't really what's been proposed. They they proposed continuing to use a set of instruments. And I think that Albany is going to have to pick up this, um, this issue and actually determine what, you know, what goes into that, um, what goes into that, uh, that formula at the end of the day. But I, I don't think, you know, I don't see this as being something that we couldn't find a good compromise on. All right. Reasonable points. And as always, we can count on Albany to do the right thing. Uh, All right. That's all the time we have for today. Next up, uh, Research Minute with Amber. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Next up here is Amber's Research Minute featuring the one and only Amber Northern. Amber, you've been watching the World Cup? I have been watching some of it, and it's been very good. I caught the England game and caught their win, and that was pretty exciting. So, yeah, I don't get every game, but, you know, enough to be able to tell you on the podcast that I'm kind of kept keeping up with it, sort of. (laughs) Is that your ancestral homeland, England, or? (laughs) No. No, okay. All right, we'll pull that thread. What do you got for us today? Uh, We are a little bit bit dry in research land, but but I found something that was nonetheless interesting. Okay. Um, We all remember that the latest NAEP results were released last April, this April rather, um, and they were not great, um, sort of stagnant. uh, But this report says that basically NAEP could be getting it wrong for English language learners, which struck me as an interesting headline, so I wanted to read it. Um, They basically say that schools aren't getting credit for moving their ELL students to English proficiency. And so analysts are NYU uh, folks, and they explain that current ELLs are a group of a broader population of multilingual students, and we should treat them as such. So in other words, you have this group of former ELs that, you know, these are the kids that already reach proficiency, like, because we want them to reach English proficiency. They're in these courses. They're getting these services. We want them to eventually get there. Mm -hmm. So you got former ELLs. You've got never ELL 
which means that they speak another language or, or languages at home, but they're classified as proficient in English when they got to school already. So mm-hmm. maybe they learned it at home, their parents taught them, whatever. Um, and that we should uh, be aware that as students move up the grades, more students are attaining English proficiency and moving into that former EL category. Okay. Um, and so, in fact, there have been studies that show up to half of students who enter kindergarten as ELs actually get reclassified before grade four and up to 85% before grade eight. So we're actually doing a good job with these kids. Um, so, for instance, if the schools made these major improvements in ELL proficiency in the primary grades and the kids, you know, by grade four, maybe they were proficient, then that's not going to show up in grade four, right? Because they've attained proficiency and they're no longer counted. Okay. Okay. Um, so instead they say, you know, and this gets a little wonky, but instead they say, you know what, why don't we think about them a little bit more broadly, not just as currently classified ELs. So they look into the NAEP data and they figure out that they can actually have this broader category of multilingual kids. If they look at the kids that reported on NAEP, you know how NAEP has that little student part, descriptive Mm -hmm. um, survey part. They look at the kids who said people in my home talk to each other in a language other than English most or all the time, okay? Okay. So that catches the kids who are current ELs, former ELs, or never ELs that already were proficient, okay? okay? And then they say, okay, let's look at those kids and compare them to the monolingual kids, all right? And those are the kids that say they never have spoken another language other than English at home. So that's the comparison we're looking at here. And the key finding is that between 2003 and 2015, NAEP achievement differences between that monolingual and that multilingual group have narrowed dramatically. Well, at least 24 to 27%, okay, which isn't shabby, not too shabby. 37 to 39% in math in the in grade four and eight, respectively. And basically, they say that's about a grade equivalent of one third to one half of a grade level closer to where they were to their monolingual peers in 2003. So they're gaining okay. ground. Um, and then they say that, you know what, they've actually increased substantially across, they looked at grades, they looked at subjects, uh, and they said, you know what, they've closed the gap nearly twice as much in grade four in both reading and math since 2003, more than three times in grade eight in reading, and more than twice as much in grade eight in math. They've got a bunch of different figures. And then they say, you know what, okay, maybe let's just show you the difference. If you just look at the ELs, the current ELs by themselves versus the broader group, you're going to be able to see that the, just the current ELs have very small and inconsistent increases by mm-hmm. subject and by grade. Mm-hmm. But when you look at that w- broader group, um, these are uh, they're a little they're a little different, right? You can just see the patterns more clearly when you do the broader group. Um, and then they go to this. I mean, again, this big discussion of we know NAEP is cross sectional because maybe so maybe we're seeing big huge cohort differences between these kids over the years, right? And so they look at. Um, I mean, it's hard to do this with NAEP data, but they do control for race, ethnicity, SES. Um, and they find that the achievement differences were obviously smaller, but they still saw those same trends over time. They were similar patterns that they were seeing. Um, so anyway, the bottom line is they say, you know what? Um, the story is more complicated. And Brandon, we can talk about this. You've wrote, written about this with high achievers on NAEP. Sure. That sometimes people paint this broad brush um, and, and the story is a little bit more complicated than that. And if you look at, use this more broader definition of kids, like moving out of EL, um, then the picture looks much better than it did 15 years ago. It's not all stagnant and, and like we think it is. Um, and then they say, well, we don't know what's happening. But lo and behold, I think, well, maybe NCLB had something to do with it. Once again, it gets a better rap now that it's over, right? right. Um, and they say that there have been several studies that actually show that NCLB put more attention on the needs of EL kids. Um, and we've seen some evidence of that. So we don't know what happened. But um, I think w- I liked it because it's showing that we're actually making some progress on having kids obtain English proficiency and the NAEP data and the way that they're categorized aren't picking up on it. 
So we should know that, right? To an extent, shouldn't uh, should we sort of expect this outcome um, when when sort of uh, there's an increase in what used to be, you know, particularly a small group. Um, mm-hmm. There's more and more ELL kids, mm-hmm. right? right? It's almost like a uh, it's a political economy argument. Like <laughs> teachers have to serve Correct. them, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're um, up to you. Want to take a guess how many ELLs ELs kids we had? I, uh, it would be embarrassing because I will be off by an yeah, order of magnitude. Yeah. Yeah, no idea. It? <laughs> it's about 10% now. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's about 10%. And what did it use to... So, I don't know. I don't know. I just know that was the figure as of, I think, 2013. Okay. So, it's, yeah, that's even that's a little old, right? And so, so, the bottom line is we're serving them better than we used to. That's right. Okay. I mean, that's what, that's what it, it appears to be the story. I guess the other question I have is, I mean... Uh, that's uh, what is our goal, right? So I've took eight years of Spanish, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you wouldn't know. Um, is the goal, yeah. in fact, uh, you know, perfect English proficiency for these kids? Is that realistic? I just, mm. I'm way outside my wheelhouse. Yeah, right? I mean, they, so the kids take a test and I don't know what this, I don't know how rigorous the test is. Honestly, it's a great question. When they come in, right, they take an English language proficiency test. Yeah. And I, I, I think different states have different cutoffs. So I'm hoping some of our readers, and normally when I have, we have conversations where we're in and above the head, our heads, I get an email from somebody explaining this to me. So feel free. Um, but I think different states have different cutoffs relative to how they're, you know, classifying English proficiency. Um, so you think about all these kids in NAEP, right? So they're coming in, all these kids are coming in at different levels anyway, right? Based on how they've been identified by their district, I'm guessing, because I don't think NAEP is, I mean, NAEP's not giving them an EL proficiency test, right? NAEP's going to rely on the district and the schools to have already identified these kids. So they're already being identified all over the map relative to their proficiency based on what the cutoff score is from their home district. And is the EL test such that somebody who is a native and uh, monolingual English speaker could fail it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we can find somebody, but yeah, no, no like, like, like I, I clearly just don't know like what the yeah. test is at all. Right. right. Like yeah. the civics test, you mean like citizenship? Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Where like a lot of immigrants would do better on it. Yeah. than we have because they've sort of prepared. Yeah. That sounds, that I mean, strikes me as likely. Anecdotally, the kids who were in my school, high school, and, and I've been in lots of schools, um, they seem to get it right. Like the, I actually think that whatever okay, the test sure. they're using is pretty good. Okay. Um, Makes sense. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, w- the thing I've seen is sometimes they don't retest them enough so that they can exit out. And for sometimes kids and parents don't want them tested out. Like they, they're pretty happy with where they are um, just in terms of their peers and that sort of thing. So that's the one, just the anecdotal thing I've seen is that sometimes, and that happens with special education too, right? Like sometimes um, the kids don't want to test out for whatever reason. So. All right, final question. Were there any states that looked particularly good or better? Yeah, I didn't see any I didn't see any state level data. Okay. Yeah. I think it was just macro. So All right. All right. And sounds good. The political economy thing uh, holds for states too, you would expect sort of more southern border states. Yeah, you would. Do better. You would. All right, well the good news is just pouring in here at the Cadfly. Until next time. I'm Brandon Wright. And I'm David Griffith for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, DC. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.